Bill Maloney is a lifer. Yeah, you give it all your heart. Cause they come to see you swing. You learn to nurse your own hurts and hope the coach doesn't suspect a thing. Sure, it is a long shot, but the sky seemed oh so clear. We may not make it out the Bush Leagues, but that's not why we're here. He's a veteran singer-songwriter, capturing the rust and dust of the human experience and haunting songs that are often exhilarating in their specific universality. Don't feel bad, hey I don't. First you say you will, and then you say you won't. I'm still your friend, it's not bothering me. I plug in this guitar, and the chords are just a prayer up past the stars. Like the spray from hollow seas inside your heart In your heart Yeah, that's the place Where you must answer the phone For every word Yeah, that you speak That leaves someone else Although he got darn close to the big time back in the day, releasing albums that deserved far more commercial success than they ever received, he has become somewhat of a poster child for that overused term, tragically overlooked. Well, we're parked here at the last verse and there's so much I seem to forget It is time to take the test, but I haven't even learned my Thompson, and if you're not familiar with Bill Malley, I want to set the stage here just a little bit. Back in the early 90s, before Americana was even known as a genre, there was a groundswell of bands and singer-songwriters blending the ethics of the rising alternative rock scene with the grit, gravel, poetic flair, and yes, twang, of southern rock and cosmic country that artists like Graham Parsons and Neil Young had injected into the American rock bloodstream. Even as grunge began to fill stadiums, you could hear the jangling echoes of 60s country rock in bands like R.E.M., Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, the Jayhawks, and Uncle Tupelo. One of the real hot spots for that scene was the Southeast, and in particular, Athens, Georgia. Athens is a college town that brought the world not only R.E.M., but widespread panic, the B-52s, Matthew Sweet, 
of Montreal, and from down the road in Macon, one of our patron saints, Mark Hurd. In fact, Hurd and REM's Peter Buck were two early advocates for Bill Melanie's band, Vigilantes of Love. After playing with a couple of other local bands, Malini formed the Vigilantes of Love in 1990. After a few years of live shows and a couple of indie releases, and with the production help of Buck and Heard, Vigilantes upped the ante with Killing Floor in 1992. That album, with a full band sound and more rock-based songwriting, really started to turn heads. The band started to tour more extensively and even landed a deal with the legendary Capricorn Records out of Macon, Georgia. Capricorn was one of those beloved labels like Stax in Memphis and Fame and Muscle Shoals that had its roots in the 60s soul and R&B era and was deeply connected to the region in which it was founded. They helped introduce artists like the Allman Brothers, Bonnie Bramlett, the Dixie Dregs, Delbert McClinton, and many others to a wider audience. For a band like Vigilantes of Love, this was huge. Hear the whistle blowing, train pretty close to leaving. into the studio with producer Jim Scott, who was also working with Tom Petty and Rick Rubin on the Wildflowers album to make an album called Welcome to Struggleville, a set that would earn critical accolades, huge fan response, and the strong expectation that their breakthrough was inevitable. Alas, that title, Welcome to Struggleville, seemed to become more prophetic than anyone might have expected. And in the rust I know the Suckers to Struggleville. 
Vigilantes of Love was a favorite at True Tunes back in the day. Their blend of real live rock with spiritually dynamic lyrics was mainstream in every way. They belonged on tour with John Mellencamp or The Call, not in the CCM world. Maloney's spiritual perspectives and his existential struggles with his own failures gave his songs deep resonance, and the band drove those songs home like a sledgehammer. We all expected that, before long, they'd be too big for our little world. The kind of widespread success we all expected, however, proved elusive. But the band soldiered on. More albums, more acclaim, more dashed expectations. True Tunes even helped to release one of their best albums, the Buddy Miller-produced Audible Sigh. That's as close to a perfect Americana rock album as I have ever heard. So we meet again. Thank you very much. It's great to be back here. Be a friend, make a friend. This song is called It Could Be a Whole Lot Worse. brushes with greatness, more close calls than any artist I can think of. And while most artists in his position would have given up by now, Maloney has not. Instead of touring and producing studio-based expensive projects with record labels, he has become a sort of digital troubadour. Despite health challenges, financial obstacles, and increasing obscurity, he continues to write and record new music, mostly out of his home studio outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Largely purchased and supported by a small tribe of fans and friends, he's like a street corner busker for the internet age, the wizened guitar slinger that is way too good to be stuck there, but way too committed to put down his guitar and get a day job.
just so much music to cover and so many eras that we want to touch on sonically to take a jukebox break for this episode. Bruce and I have decided once again to simply load her up with music from an assortment of the 70 plus albums in Melanie's catalog and let them spill out throughout the show. I'll tell you more about the music you've heard at the end and on the show notes page, of course. We let this dark horse out of the barn right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Hi, I'm Bill Keith, and I'm a Patreon backer of True Tunes. The show is really important to me, and I know that the money I contribute each month goes a long way toward helping with the cost associated with producing and distributing a show of this caliber. And yes, the rewards are cool too. We get early access to new episodes that we can download in a higher quality audio format, as well as invites to exclusive backers-only Zoom hangs and some special swag and stuff. There are multiple levels you can join at, and every gift helps. Check out patreon.com slash truetunes for more information on how to join me and the rest of the Patreon tribe. And thanks for considering a gift. It really will make a difference. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I have also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. It wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a lot to me, and I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, but please not while you're driving, to leave a rating and review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out to podcast platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive those numbers up together. Thanks. Welcome back to the True Tunes Podcast. honored to be joined in the True Tunes virtual interview suite by my old friend, Bill Maloney. Paste Magazine listed him as one of the 100 greatest living songwriters, and magazines such as Rolling Stone and Billboard had nothing but good things to say as well. He has worked with musicians and producers who have been connected to some of the biggest names out there. And Maloney continues to write and record new music at a pace that would make most young artists faint. Hopefully you saw our coverage of his recent projects, A Clamoring of Ghosts, Lead On, Kindly Light, and Rags of Absence. Today, though, you can finally hear our long-awaited conversation with the man himself. We'll talk about his early years, those near misses, and what he thinks about music's potential after almost 40 years with a guitar in his hands. Martin Luther said to one of his brothers, except for one instance, no one can die. Devil makes me fearful about my survival. One's gone before to ensure your arrival. Sometimes darkness rolls in, it just takes hold of me. 
eyes will be Sunrise will be yeah. Well, Bill Malney, thank you for joining us on the True Tunes podcast, man. It's great to great to see you and hear your voice and it's good to hear your I mean, voice, John. Nice it seems like in forever. person, but it has it has been a while since we've been in person. But we have spent quite a bit of time in person together over the years. I've got some a little bit of notes here, just because I know that between the two of us, with all of our history, we could probably end up rambling <laughs> for hours and never get anywhere, and then Bruce and, will kill me. <laughs> let's save that for another time. That right. that would be fun to do. I remember once being with you in Chicago and you, the first time I ever, I, you and I were with a group of people getting pizza in Chicago and you said, Hey, how about you and I share a pizza? And I was like, okay. And then you said, now here's how I like my pizza. And this is what I recall pesto sauce <laughs> instead of red sauce. And I was like, Oh, I, I don't think I'd ever had pesto sauce. And then garlic, just garlic and cheese and yeah. pesto sauce and then when you ordered it you're like however much garlic you think is the right amount of garlic could you put maybe three times that much garlic <laughs> and so did i say yeah, that? Right. and so oh we're at this place God. and the, the waitress was like i can put as i can put enough garlic on there to you know make your hair fall out and that pizza was unbelievable i could not i mean as i'm eating that thing and you're just gobbling it down and i'm like i thought i was tough but i had never had anything like that in my life and i had to drive back home after aurora with just my whole body just almost in convulsions i can't go there with that anymore uh, you know one stomach does sort of age with uh, yeah, that was probably I, I, I can't ago, do that but. anymore Before we get going on the other stuff, how's your health doing? Was moving out there to the desert, was that partly for health reasons? Were you trying to kind of get environmentally clean and... and I'd gotten so tired and burned out of just doing that 85-95 corridor with, you know, hanging a left to Nashville once in a while. Right. We landed out here uh, 12 years ago and we were in Albuquerque and and this is classic, no shows between Albuquerque and Athens, GA. So we thought, we'll just look around. So we Craigslisted things, and you know everything out here is built with adobe, so it all looks like Bethlehem. And uh, we were just, you know, enamored of it, and thought, you know, I, I think we could do this. And then, you know, one thing led to another. Rents are cheap. We live in a rural area north of Santa Fe, south of Taos. So it it, it is a little dicey sometimes with things like reception and you know getting to where you need, like if there's a medical emergency or something right. like that, which has definitely been a bit of a concern. I was diagnosed with lymphoma two years ago, and the dr- I didn't have to take chemo or radiation. It's what they call small lymphocytic lymphoma. Mm-hmm. I've got a, it's like an abdominal region sort of thing. I knew something was wrong two years before it was diagnosed. Could never get it properly, uh, you know, uh, imaged. Hmm. And uh, so when they did come down with the diagnosis two years ago, you know, it, 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 it actually it's more of a mind game than it is something physiologically going on in your in your body. It's like, holy day, mortality, that's a bitch. Oh, right. And uh, I've been thinking about this stuff since I was seven years old. I don't know if it was the Roman old guard Roman Catholic background that made you dwell on your failures and mortality and the shortness of life, but it had been ingrained in my bloodstream since day one. 
Um, but so basically the, the therapy was, you know, you take these drugs and the only really negative side effects that makes your heart speed up to like tachycardia levels. And so there's a buffering drug for that. For, so for two years, every three months, I was taking a CT scan to see if the, the tumors, there's three tumor sites, if they had shrunk or anything like that. And uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was pretty small if it did any shrinking at all. So, but it was holding it in check. So I thought, well, you know, that's something to be thankful for. So, you know, I was praying for healing and there are a lot of folks out there praying for me. Well, about five, about four weeks ago, John, I went in for a PET scan, which is a little bit more um, astute way of imaging this thing. And they had three tumor sites. This is the last thing I'll say. One of them had shrunk 50%. Wow. Another one had shrunk 30%, and the third one, they couldn't even find it. Wow. So I, I went back to my oncologist. Uh, there's a woman and a, and a fellow here in, in, down in Santa Fe. And I said, so how do you explain this? And, and they looked at me, and they said, we don't know. Right. We don't know. You know and and one of the, I said, well, I think it was a miracle. I just said, I had this chance to witness, pal. This is God. God did this. And, uh, the, you know, the medical profession is always a little leery of that. Maybe not in Nashville. They're not, you know. <laughs> but but and, and the way they're trained, you know, it has to have a, a, right. a clinical way of describing and, and miracle just doesn't get it for them. So I said, well, I think it was a miracle. Well, one of the guys said, one of the oncologists said, well, I'll tell you what. It, it is odd that it shrunk that much. But it's a good odd. And Mariah said, well, when you take the words good and odd and put them together, it's God. And I thought that's brilliant. Good, good enough. Good and odd is God. So anyway, that's where we left it. So good news. I'm back in the saddle and feel great. But it's the first really good piece of, you know, psychological good news that I've had in about two years. So there you go. So anyway, I'm off drugs now. I, the, the cancer drugs and the little buffering drug, I'm, I'm done with that. So that's a good thing. got about a 35 year or so career singing songs and making music that pretty much from the beginning you were like you know screw the easy stuff we're going straight to the dark side here and we're going to blast our way through like you know you're the you're the coal miner with the stick of dynamite that's going straight straight in like i don't know i'm going to find my way through this mountain so i um i feel like that's probably the way that we start a conversation like this all right well good good we'll, we'll start with the grim and get to the light that yeah. was good yeah but my health is good and we came to new mexico just because it is the land of enchantment it hasn't disappointed we live all right outside the door we're in the rockies in a range called the Sangre de Cristo it's 6,000 feet and uh, so I drink coffee in the morning and look at the Rocky Mountains and we'll they'll have snow on them in a minute or two here so wow. um, take me back though to the to the beginning and tell me about your your early days and when music first got under your skin and <clears throat> and went from <clears throat> I'm a fan of this stuff I love this stuff to no I'm gonna do this this is gonna be part of my life sure I'm, I'm investing in this yeah what was that process I think in the early well in the, in the early days I, I was a young drummer at age 12 I had I was playing my first kit 
and you know, it was, it was Ringo and Charlie Watts, it was the Beatles, it was the Stones, it was the Birds. The Birds is how I even came into Dylan. I didn't care for Dylan initially. It was just a little too uh, whiny for some reason. But I liked Roger McGuinn's rendering of Dylan's songs, and that's how I got in the back door to finally appreciating the roots of that kid from Hibbing, Minnesota. Uh, but it, it was slow, and I was just playing drums and thinking, well, I could kind of make a career of this. But the, you know, the parents, by the time I got, this is Chapel Hill, North Carolina growing up, and it was a stack of wax in a dusty basement, yeah. an unfinished basement with a drum set and a little you know, uh, LP player with the speakers that I could kind of push out left and right and just rock just and play learn how to play. Record, yeah. Play along, and then later on I was trying to play along with you know, people like Ginger Baker and John Bonham, and I couldn't touch either of those guys. But you know, it was still you know, back to Charlie and Ringo. But Paul Revere and the Raiders, I have to say that too, because I, I love the Raiders. Yeah. Uh, but that's where it started. Lost all his sons, lost all his crops and his animals, each and every one. Still, I know whom I believe in and persuaded he is able to keep track of all the cards laid down on my table. Hold me tight, I'm losing it Hold me tight, confusing it And then there was a big gap, and I didn't pick up a guitar until I was 31 years old, and then seven years later, that was part of the Athens, Georgia scene. I was, I was writing, you know, about 75 songs a year and, and looking for you know, an outlet for them. So between, you know, playing Athens and Atlanta, which was like 60 miles away, and occasional, you know, gig off the, up up in the East Coast somewhere. Uh, that was what I did. Initially, Vigilantes of Love, most people don't know this. I had played in rock bands before. Uh, had a lot of work in Athens as a drummer with some of the indie bands that were coming up through the ranks, kind of in the 80s when R.E.M. was, you know, kind of making their, you know, just storming the gates of indie rock. You know, it wasn't even there at first. I mean, they'll they'll tell you this. There wasn't college radio when, when there, it was there, but they were still right. playing Steely Dan and Pink Floyd. Right. But anyway, you know, R.E.M. busted the gates open, and I, I knew we were sort of in the storm in the epicenter. So V.O.L. really made its, you know, its, its foray into the fray in 92 with Killing Floor. I had released a couple records before then, but that's that's when it kind of came. And I could support a band and, you know, take them from A to B and, and win some friends. So that that was kind of the uh, the long, but somewhat 25 words or less. If you're planning your escape, What I remember being interesting when I first, because I first encountered you around that Killing Floor time, and it was probably through Mark Hurd, but y you were older, like you, you were, like you're saying, you were in your early 30s, and 
you were playing with younger people, but you brought a level of maturity. And you didn't you spend time either as a, a medic or working in a, um, a mental health facility? You were you were approaching that college rock alternative thing, but with a level of adulthood already under your belt that most of us didn't have. The cover of Driving the Nails, that picture of the kid with the guitar etched in it says, this means war. Yeah. Driving the Nails was the record precursor. It was Jugular, Driving the Nails precursor right. to Killing Floor. I was 38 when that photograph was taken, but I was late to the game. So I felt like I had all this time to make up for it. The, uh, I became a believer sometime in college, 17, 18 years old. And, uh, you know, the works of people like, you know, Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis figured largely in my sort of integrating and a small house church in Athens, Georgia, led by a, a pastor named Alan Dan Orm, who was a professor at the University of Georgia. He had multiple degrees. So it was sort of, you know, Christianity with this sort of intellectual uh, respectability or intellectual integrity, I guess would be the better Curiosity word, too. was kind of what motivated yeah, and exactly. And, and that's a good word, intellectual curiosity. So, you know, in our, our little house church was never more than 30 to 50 people on a Sunday. And we had a lot of seekers in that church as well. I was in love with the music of the Athens scene. I, I loved, you know, bands like Pylon and, of course, R.E.M. So, you know, that's kind of where I thought, well, I can, I can do this. I can play this stuff. But the, uh, the the experience before that in the mid-'80s, I was also working at a, at a mental health facility on the adult unit. It's just a mental health assistant and sometimes— um, parlaying with the social work uh, configuration inside that hospital. And it, it brought me up close and personal. And it reinforced the idea that, you know, our, our, yeah, we have, you know, psychological woes and, uh, and physical woes, but for the most part, there's, a, there's this gaping hole, you know, that is spiritual that only God can fill. And it was never an agenda. I don't, I don't think I was trying to push it as an agenda or even at worst propaganda, but it was very much a core of my, my being. And I try to stress this now just because I realize when I go back and look at old interviews, John, it eluded me back then. But I, my songs were basically pep talks to myself. I've never, never written a single song with a particular audience in mind. Not Christian, not, you know, Martian, whatever. Black crow been flying around the house for seven days. Scarecrows in the cornfield making boy. Members of the Trinity just right by his guest. He said, Enough of the pleasantries, we got a warrant for your arrest. Mr. Three Piece on my window, he wants me to butter up his bread. He said, I lie to you, kid. Well, think about it, I don't know. I said, Goodness, Mr. Three Piece, your heart, it feels like I sent it. Man on the corner, imagine Jesus Christ. So one thing that he told me, and I think about this a lot. He said, Son, you got to strike while the iron is high. we first encountered each other it struck me how you were seemed very concerned like you were aware enough about that christian music world to not want to get put in it 
And we were not part of that. We were like way on the edges of that. Like we touched it sometimes, but the whole purpose of True Tunes was to create an alternate way of thinking about that stuff. So that's why I'm pretty sure it was Mark Hurd and his manager, Dan Russell, that had reached out to me and sent me your stuff and said, you got to hear this guy. And then um, seeing you at that first time at Cornerstone, then you came and actually played in our store, like before we even had the club. I don't know if you remember, we shoved all the CD racks to the wall and put a stage in and it was the first time we'd ever done that it was crazy and the true tunes in wheaton was great i still remember those i think we played there twice didn't you guys move upstairs yeah we had the club upstairs and you played up there with over the rhine and i think you might have played there a couple times but but i remember that first time in the store where i hired a pa company to come build a stage and put a pa (laughs) in and the cops came and then they ended up just loving it but you were really concerned and i we understood it because we're like that's the whole reason we're here there you guys aren't a christian rock band you're just a rock band and you're in the same kind of tradition as a lot of those other southern rock uh, americana groups that are just asking these deeper questions but but you seemed to know enough about that world to know not to get on that bus and that was the thing is that a lot of people didn't know that and they just kind of accidentally ended up in the wrong part of town (laughs) you know (laughs) so so tell me about that like what was that for you like what i didn't feel like the songs that i was writing and wanting to write because i had just a little i had people you know when i first um became a Christian sliding me these records and they were by people and I'm not going to mention names. And I just thought, um, yeah, this is not me. This does not groove and it doesn't rock. It doesn't do any of that stuff. And these were, these would be name bands out of the Christians sixties and seventies. I've since that time gone back and reassessed that statement. I was an arrogant SOB, John. There's no doubt about it. That was an arrogant son of a bitch back in the day about what it was I was doing and how oh so important it was. And I say, I'm saying that facetiously, but I've met very few artists who are serious artists that don't view their work that same way. There's a certain holy arrogance about it. And, and so I'll, I'll confess to that. But Mark, when we made, I can still see Mark standing at the doorway in January with the Killing Floor tapes under, under his arm. And we had just made this phenomenal record uh, and we knew it was going to be good. And Mark was going to take it back to L.A. and mix it. And Dan had just called us, Dan Russell, and said, well, I got you guys booked for the Cornerstone Festival. And I you know, was a little reticent about it. I hung up the phone, didn't make any decisions. I looked at Mark. I said, you know what that conversation was about, don't you? And Mark said, yeah. And I said, well, and I can still see him with that long you know, British coat on, you know, d- down below his knees. And his, you know, it's just magnificent, you know, curly hair. And he looked at me and he said, I wouldn't do it. That's what Mark told me. And I knew that was the takeaway from years and years of Mark knocking at the door, trying to expand the horizons of the aesthetics of CCM and just getting nothing but heck for it. And, and, I, and I thought, well, I don't know. Dan, on the other hand, was like, well, you know, even the church needs to hear the gospel once in a while, so go there and do it. And I thought, well, we've got some friends here. This yeah. is, these are good folks. And that's why I continue to go back and play that festival is really more or less just to make friends with the people who had been so, you know, uh, gracious to us. So you find these dreams awakening and they shine to run their course. So much for this thing called life. Tracing it back to its, 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 Tracing it back to tracing it back to its source. Yeah, to its source. Yeah, 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 to its 
be back with more of my conversation with Bill Maloney right after this. Hello, I'm Matt from Philadelphia, and I'm a Patreon supporter of the True Tunes podcast. One thing I've done, and I know it makes a big difference for True Tunes, is to sign up for the email list at truetunes.com. It might not seem like a big deal, and it's really easy to do, but it's more important than ever for them to be able to communicate with us without having to pay middlemen like Facebook or Instagram. I know that John has some big ideas brewing, and having the ability to let us know is going to be pivotal to the success of those ideas. It's easy to do. Just find the link at the upper right corner of the homepage at truetunes.com, and voila! Make sure to check for the confirmation message and respond. It can also help if you add JJT at TrueTunes.com to your contacts so that the messages from John don't get caught in your spam filter. Who knows? You might even win a free record, poster, or t-shirt just for being on the list. Thanks. Hey there. I'm Mark Feldbush, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast, and I follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. I get to hear classic artists that I really dig and discover new artists. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated with around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts and from across a wide range of genres, including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and so much more. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true without all of the genre and market limitations and boxes I hear everywhere else. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically each week. And don't miss the massive archive list where all previous lists get saved. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, please support the artists you love once you hear and discover them there. Thanks. We're back with the True Tunes podcast. were so generous to us. You guys were, true, true tunes, everybody there was so generous to us. Of course, with Struggleville, you know, having Capricorn there, all the all the accolades that we got in the press was coming from secular press. So we, we went from that, uh, from that on. I mean, we were getting really good stuff, whether it was, you know, New York Times or Rolling Stone or Spin. I think Spin Magazine yeah. was still out there working on it. What was your um, thinking when you got to that level? Because, um, that gear you hit, especially with Struggleville, before we get into that album, I want to talk about that album, but first, just what kind of philosophy uh, or ethic had you dialed in about the purpose of what you were doing? You know, you, there was definitely something going on intentionally behind your music 
you had something that you were trying to accomplish with that stuff. It felt like you were on a mission. What was that mission? Well, that's a good question. And just to go back to what I said earlier, I I wrote these songs as pep talks to myself. I really didn't know where any of it was going. I I had no idea. I I know that there was a... um, when I was growing up, I, I really believed, you know, in in, uh, in the monkeys and the TV show and in Hard Day's Night. And I thought, I want a band to be a family. I want mm-hmm. a band to be this chemistry. And the Struggleville band, and a lot of people would be surprised if this wasn't it. It just wasn't it. We were very, not that we were diametrically opposed to one another, but there was definitely tension in the ranks that came out later on, shortly after the record actually hit. Um, and that, that's really what I wanted. My purpose was just to find a band, a chemistry of musicians who really, you know, wanted to play and, and were, were having fun with it. You know, and it was my way of seeing America. I'd been locked in a, you know, Son of the South for a long time. So getting in a van and going out and play with your friends, I just thought that's that's the next step to heaven. You know, it's why didn't Dante write that? Band in a van. You know, the, <laughs> the fourth book of the trilogy. Anyway, I don't know. I, I loved it. I loved it. But I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I don't think we had a, a perspective. I know that we hit pretty strong on a couple of modern rock stations, 99X in Atlanta being one of them. I know that the AAA market adult alternative album was just starting to blow up, John, and we were on medium to heavy rotation on about 90 out of the 120 stations. That's the kind of information that was coming down from Capricorn Records. So after a while, you start you start assessing your, your worth in terms of record sales that week, and they could never get records in the stores. Classic sort of story back then for indie rock bands. They could never get records in the stores and how many spins you got on radio. Well, what I found out, again, on AAA, heavy rotation meant you got played once a day. Heavy rotation on a modern rock station meant you got played three or four times a day. So you could come up, if you were in heavy rotation, you're getting played five to six times a week. All of this stuff started to convolute my way of thinking about, why are you doing this? And is the fun going out of it? And the answer is, Yes, yeah, not the reason I was doing it in the first place. And yes, the fun is starting to go out of it. And this is post-Struggleville, but not by much. Mm-hmm. So that's I, I just didn't have an idea of where it was going or what my yeah. role was. Did I, did I want to be a did I want to be an astute believer and when, when somebody asked me questions? Yes, I don't think I ever said, you know, I'm not a Christian. I, I was very upfront about that sort of stuff, but I also said, so now can we can we talk about the music? Were there were there artists and authors and filmmakers and was there kind of a concept of how art could or should impact individual yeah. people or culture in general? What was the sort sure. of guiding ethic or purpose that you had, if any, beyond that monkeys kind of friends in a band yeah. uh, family thing? That I think just bringing you? the aesthetic. Uh, the aesthetic, the themes that could be addressed in a rock and roll song, the themes that could be addressed in a pop song. You know, I was told, I told journalists that I'm, I'm kind of more of a confessional writer. 
it, it's sort of a very personalized stuff. People said, is there anything between you and the song? I said, no, there's not much. You know, and even when it shows up in a, in a third person, I'm, there's probably something of me in that third person. So they were, they were pep talks. But I wanted to see the aesthetic of, of songs, you know, brought up a notch, and that's kind of what I was going for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just in the general scope of what was going out there and being accepted as, um, you know, music spiritual or secular or otherwise. Was the Flannery O'Connor God Haunted South thing on your radar? Were you familiar with that idea of? I, I, I was definitely of, familiar with Flannery's yeah. work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, Thomas Merton. I discovered, you know, Beekner, or he found me somehow in 1992. I uh, picked up a, a copy of uh, The Hungering Dark in a Borders mm. bookstore. And uh, it changed my life. I've probably read, you know, 25 of his 30 books. And I miss him. I know we, we recently lost him. But uh, I was going to ask God, you, I thought that maybe you know, it was either you or Mark around that time that first told me about Beekner. And I think it was Godric that I got first. And we Godric, just, yeah, that was yeah. my second one. Yeah. What'd you think? Oh, my gosh. It, it was, yeah, it made so much sense. Now, I was a kid from the up, you know, the Chicago area and, the, and even the farm area in central Illinois. So not a southern kid. But that idea that... Um, you could be Christ haunted, even if you weren't uh, doing something oh, sure. that was specifically Christian. That was in the air in the South, and then I didn't understand that idea of like, what would that? Why would you mean Christ haunted? Because it really, the Chicago area, it might be Catholic haunted. <laughs> you know, like there, there's elements of the yeah. of the culture that felt very Catholic, um, very ethnically yeah. haunted, um, and there were oh true, you know, but not as much that. But then you get down here, and I've lived down here for 15 years, spent some more time, and boy, you get vestiges of, you know, slavery and uh, white supremacy, and you start to see the, the inherent conflict between the message of the gospel and the function of the church, and you see how that kind of tension over hundreds of years can lead to some lasting psychic scars. It's horrific, and in just the last, you know, six to eight years in this country, we've seen the polarization of those you know, two mm-hmm. two things that you describe, the church and this other thing that, that claims, you know, the church and Christianity, but it was there. You, it was implicit everywhere. Now, you know, living in Athens because it was such a, and, and kind of growing up and being nurtured in Athens as far as the music went, John, that that was a very, you know, you know, blue of all blue, you know, states, uh, areas, you know, to be in, uh, I think in the 60s and 70s. Evil was a little bit more easy to discern when it came out in the social drama of, you know, politics or sociology or the way of life. Now I think it's a little harder to sort of find. It's, it wears many disguises now. Mm-hmm. I think is what I'm what I'm trying to ramble through here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes maybe even the church, you know, as we've seen it in some of the things that it's embraced or not stepped away from adequately, um, you know, they might be part of the problem too. So. The king. One of the things that really struck me, even at the time, but I was young and I, I don't think I really fully appreciated as much as I do now when I go back and listen, and now that I've read more O'Connor and some of those authors and looked at some of that poetry, this is not a feel-good thing other than the fact that I could go, oh, I'm not alone in this. Like, I'm, 
all yeah. of this pain I'm feeling, I, there's community in this suffering. One of the reasons why I didn't change the way I was writing and was, was fine with writing from the inside out and saying, well, that's, that's the way it came out and that's what it looks like. Uh, a very fine-tuned um, understanding that the darkness that's in the world is also underneath our skin. And because we're also living in basically the same skin, then what I say is probably going to resonate with somebody. Um, you know, it's like the line out of Vincent, you can't please everyone all the time, but you know, you can sometimes please somebody. And that's the, um, uh, as a horrible paraphrase of it, but sometimes it, it felt to me like there's going to be folks that are going to register with, it's going to register with this, whatever themes they're picking up, even if there's just incongruities or a slight deliberate obfuscation in some of these songs. Because my favorite way of putting songs together in some ways was this, I've got, you know, four or five lyric sheets in front of me. This is how Struggleville came about. Uh, the, the song itself, there were four or five lyric sheets and I just pulled a stanza from one, a stanza from another and blocked them all together and let the meaning emerge from it. Mm. And that's how that song was written. And I love doing that because it feels like there's something outside of me that's bigger and, and it's kind of and it is directing it in some shape, form or fashion. So I let those sort of happy mistakes go or those happy uh, uh, protocols go, you know, and just and that's kind of the way it is. But we're all living in the same skin. That's the, the right. only thing I, I really wanted to say there. So that's why when we talk about the darkness or the, you know, the loneliness or, uh, yeah, we're, we 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 feel alone. But like you just pointed out, we're, we're not alone. We're all in it together. So I stole down to the waterfront to escape the desert heat. Oh, what on earth you gotta do around here? Yourself a drink Heard John the Baptist preaching Make way for the king But if you want to recognize him You gotta tell me all your sins They're building a new gallows But when you show up on the streets Polishing the electric chair Struggleville. So the Welcome to Struggleville album. Tell me about that album, the way those songs came together, and what was click. It feels like some several things really started to click, fall into place. We had always had. I had always had a hard time of uh, a problem of keeping a band sort of melded together. Sometimes it was people being involved in other groups that were more successful. Uh, sometimes there were just difficulties with individuals who couldn't you know, make things work in their lives on a personal level. And so they were available one time and not another. But with, with Newton Carter, you know, God rest his soul. We lost him a few years back. Uh, with Travis McNabb, who was actually on board as, as one of the first members of that particular lineup. And then Newton knew David Labrie. David's from New Orleans. It's just unbelievable uh, mm -hmm. bass player. So we got David in. The bass player that we'd had previously had developed some pretty severe uh, carpal tunnel, but all that galvanized in a short period of time, and it was storming. I had this new batch of songs that had, and they, they took them in a different direction, to tell you the truth. I mean, there were songs on there. I don't have the actual set list in front of me right now, but they were very, they were far more funky and grooving oriented mm -hmm. than anything that I'd written. Most of my stuff in it was electric, was sort of Neil Youngish. 
I was still playing acoustic guitar almost all the time. I, I had electric guitars, but I didn't play them in the Struggleville band very much. I was still ramping up with the acoustic and playing it, you know, really loud and and uh, a little bit of compression on it and just kind of, you know, being in your face with it. I didn't need I didn't need the electric guitar then. So that's kind of where it went. And we were we were starting to sell out shows in Atlanta. We were playing places like the Cotton Club, Eddie's Attic. We were we were selling out shows. I thought, man, there's something going on here. Anyway, that's the band that wound up in Austin, Texas. In, in 92 and and we got we got signed mm -hmm. uh, it, it was that simple it was like well three four months later we're in the studio with jim scott jim was working on the tom petty's wildflowers record right with rick rubin um and they had gotten six months into the record and rick told tom i can't imagine anybody ever saying this to tom petty but the story that i got from jim scott rick told tom petty to go home and write he said we've got six good songs tom go home and write six more Mm -hmm. And I think, well, I'm sure he had given you 20 songs so they were all killer. Yeah. So we got Jim for a few months because Tom was home writing new songs. And uh, Jim came to Atlanta and we went into uh, Triclop Studio. And that's where we started. That's where we banged out the basic tracks. And we came back to Athens and did the overdubs. And like I said, that band, they, they, they infused those songs with more of a, a more of a rock and groove sort of thing. And it was it was amazing. And in fact, I told Newt when it was time to do the vocals, I said, I, I think you guys need to find another singer. I'm not sure I can sing these songs. <laughs> and it was like, come on, you can do this. You wrote them. So there's a there's a couple little places, even on the Struggleville record, I think that's just a little out of my range. But I was still being belabored by the fact that, you know, if you could sing a song in G, but you can't hear it on the monitors, then put it in A and just bust a nut. And you're, you're going to hear yourself. That, that was my ridiculous philosophy about approaching songs and how to sing them. So there's a couple little moments on that record. I think, you know, I don't know, really, I wish that would go by quicker. But anyway, it, it, it is what it is. And it's what we worked with, you know, and then we got in the van and, and you know, it, it slowly but surely, you know, things started to fall apart. <laughs> but, uh, it was, it was, it was <laughs> a great, yeah, it was a great ride. The van it was prophetic a, at the same time. Now, this might be kind of a sensitive question, so feel free to say, hey, don't ask that. <laughs> but, uh, but I want to throw it out there and give you a chance to respond to it. Um, am I right to assume that part of a $100 price tag to back this, when we see that you know, a, a lot of vinyl things like this are in the $50 range, that that's given us a chance to, to contribute towards your cost of just being alive and living? Like, this is also this is your job. This is your work. And there's a, there's some income for you and uh, your cost of living. And yeah, I mean, that, that is part of it, but it's, that's not the center of it. I mean, two things, the, the company that we're going with on this thing is the best company in America right now. There's really only two that are doing vinyl like this. 
and got a groove records. I mean, I, I'd be glad to show anybody the budget. I, I'm basically in the role of the chair of being the executive producer for this thing. And I can tell you right now that whatever comes in, probably two thirds of that budget is going straight out the door to record. The record is one thing, the rediscover, because we haven't mentioned this, there was a rehearsal tape that Jim, Jim Scott recorded with us on two inch 24 track. And we, we had eight songs that we went through. And a, I think there's one song that we did twice because we changed the key in it. But so there's that coming out with it. That's, that's been digitized. It's got to be remastered and then, and then also printed up in a CD format. So they're not just getting the double 180 gram um, album. And the other thing that's great about that is the record's 48 minutes long. But to take that and put it and spread it across two albums means the grooves are massive. It means you're going to get right. information. If you're an audiophile, it's going to be an incredibly, you know, hugely stereophonic record. They're going to love it. And right. they did such a good job on Killing Floor. I thought, that record, I had people, I still have people writing me saying, I'm listening to Killing Floor like I heard it the first time. You know, mm -hmm. it, it sounds different and better because they got the vinyl. And I realize vinyl is not everybody's cup of tea, but the $100 price tag is more than fair given the double LP. It's two records, folks, not one. Mm -hmm. It's not just crammed. It's not, you know, 50 minutes of music crammed into, you know, one fa uh, two faces. It's spread out. It's huge that way. It has to be remastered for vinyl to improve its quality. Um, and then they're getting the uh, rehearsal tape. And yeah, sitting in the executive producer chair for three months is, is gonna take some, you know, some coin. And I think that with, uh, with this stuff, a lot of folks just don't have a chance to look behind the curtain and see what the real costs are. The other thing is we forget that this is somebody's job and you know, that, that part of this is it's reasonable for yeah. people to get paid for what they're doing. And, it is a lot of money, but if you're an audiophile and that's what you're paying for. The other thing is just a scarcity factor. I mean, you can go down the list. You know, right. I'm not Bruce Springsteen ordering right. 10,000 exactly. records. I'm Bill right. Maloney ordering 300. Right. It's like, 300 and they're going to pay for that. So, yeah, so you know, come and get it because when they're gone, they're gone. Everybody got a secret that they've been sitting on. The candid among you see theirs feels like an atom bomb. These things I know are delicate, could do you some harm. Got to have some friends working on the bomb squad, working on the bomb squad. I said I know the passion and the suffering and pain. Oh, you give me another minute and I'll explain everything. I just distanced myself from it for well over a decade. I mean, I'd hear a track here and there. And then somebody called up and said, hey, did you know John Mellencamp did a version of, of the song itself? Uh, and I looked at that and realized he hadn't given, given credit to anybody. He just sang it and stuck it up on his, probably, I don't know, I don't know what his management does, but anyway, there was no communication. Mm. Um, anyway, you know, he did this version of the song. I thought, well, let's go back and revisit the record for what it is. And it, it still feels uh, relevant, intense, and it's got energy in it that I, that I love. I thought, well, that, that's me. That's us. That was that band. That, that chemistry was there. I guess my, my last question about that specific record, when you go back and do this, is it enjoyable? Is it painful? Is it, you know, what, what are the emotions you're feeling as you go through and yeah. revisit these things? That's a great question. And I'm so glad you asked it because I have been aware over the last week when I've been, you know, just, you know, out to the post office or, you know, the little uh, co-op or something to grab milk and bread. I've been very aware that there's a bittersweet quality to it. There's nothing that you can freeze frame that lasts. It's like, you know, it, it, it feels more like a grace now. And I'm not trying to wax, you know, uber religious on this, John, but it feels more like there were some stars aligning and I realized that I, 
we like to think that we're controlling the vertical and horizontal of our lives, but, mm-hmm. but we're not. We're, we're doing our best. And this, when I went back and listened to that record, I thought, you know, Bill, everything that lined up to make that record happen, you know, whether it was Mark Hurd in front of it or, you know, Fingerprint and Dan Russell, the studios we went into, Jim Scott, I mean, he was working with just some great people. I thought, how did this happen? Because three months ago it wasn't happening. And all of a sudden the stars aligned and here we are. And you just start realizing that the thing that you're listening to is bigger than yourself. And the project is bigger than you. So there's a little bittersweet quality about it. I thought, well, did I, you know, should I have stayed with this a little bit longer? I, I don't know. You know, it was, it feels more like a grace and that there was something outside making this thing come together and, uh, and, and come forth the way it did. Only heard a few stories, I've only seen a few works. Tractor paints on plywood, covered up with Bible verse. You see so much, see not much at all. had these distinct, they seem to me to be fairly distinct phases of Vigilantes of Love and then into your last 20 years or so as a as a solo troubadour. You've got those, you know, the Struggleville band era. You've got the, the Kenny Hudson and Jake Bradley era, the Kevin oh, Hoyer and Chris band. Bland era. So um, these chapters uh, in the book, you know, that, that kind of unfolded. Tell me about the distinctions and the things that you learned, uh, sort of the markers that happened along the way and the, the marks that they left on you, each of those things, and, um, and how that yeah. affected you as an artist and uh, that kind of thing. The record after uh, Struggleville was Blister Soul. That was more of a studio record in a lot of ways because the band hadn't really galvanized uh, whoever was going to be in it, but I had these songs. And uh, we, you know, we walked into John Keane's studio. John played guitar. I had from the uh, Capricorn radio guy, uh, Jeff Cook, he said, Bill, if you can get us a, a kind of a ramped up electric guitar version of Real Downtown, which is already on. Mark, Mark Hurd and I recorded that for a Killing, I mean, a, excuse, yeah, for Killing Floor. If you can get us a ramped up version of that, that's going to be the song that Modern Rock Station wants to hear. And we did. And uh, But John played electric on it. Um, I played some electric on the album. But that was that was the, that was the song that broke it open.
but there was no band. There was no real band to go out and do it. Um, Chris Donahue's incredible bass player, and I know he's a huge, you know, Nashville session player, and, and he, he's he's great. Chris got um, you know a, a nod from somebody to come and play on their record, and, and moved to Nashville, so he did. So we were we were without um, bass and guitar for a minute there, um, and I, I just don't think that the Blister Soul Band, that what we went out with, John, I don't think it was very top notch. It certainly couldn't hold a candle to Welcome to Struggleville Band. So what I was learning, and Mark and Mark Hurd and I had this this talk. I said, you know, you, you learn how to be a writer, you learn how to fine hone that and, and tune it, and, and then you kind of learn how to be a band leader, but all that other stuff uh, of how to work with, you know, labels and contracts and management and attorneys, you know, you're playing on their field all the time. And I was starting to feel like I was drowning. Like, I, I can't keep this up. We're not really protected. We don't really have a manager who is assertive or aggressive enough to get us in the right places. So we, we, never, we never got out of the van. And most people think, oh, that sure sounds glorious. And outside of a few festivals in places like Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, maybe um, maybe Nashville. You know, we could sell out the 12th and Porter. But those weren't big, big shows. And we certainly weren't playing, you know, in front of 500 people a night. That's when we started to jockey for position about trying to get the band in front of somebody that was filling up, you know, a small theater. You know, two to three thousand people. Well, those positions, th those bands, we were told were all, those bands that we were going for were bands like Sunbolt and Wilco, uh, Jayhawks, people like that. And did, we didn't have any conduits into any of those bands. And what we found out from their management is those groups were trying to open for the Petties and the Springsteens and the Mellon Camps. It's like, oh, I see how this works. So they're trying to get a leg up on their careers too by playing in front of more people. And and I. I remember we talked about this in the band a good bit, um, Kenny and and, uh, and Jake and uh, and Kevin, and I talked about it a lot. It's like, you know, I, I think we're consigned to playing in front of, you know, maybe 40 to 75 people a night, if we're lucky. And uh, But just think about that. And they're like, oh, no, we're, we're all in this together. And they were. Kenny was in the band for two and a half years. We, we made a lot of music. We uh, he, he was part of the Roof of the Sky equation. And that was a great record. I think that, that record probably deserves to be on vinyl as well because it was the precursor to Buddy Miller and Audible Sigh. And it, it has just a, a grit to it that that is kind of lost on Audible Sigh in favor of a more radio-friendly Americana. But I love that record, and there's, there's good songs on it. But I was learning, you know, that, well, you just have to go with the moment. 
and I felt like the songs were getting better. I was becoming more proficient on electric guitar. Uh, moved that up to uh, you know slow dark train uh, with Chris and Tom, and, and that was that was me playing electric guitar for the entire set. I think maybe I had a couple acoustics on stage, but I'm not sure I played them every night. Yes, you're a big skip. That record came out sounding more like a garage record, and the label they they didn't like it. They I don't I don't think they really went for it. They, they yeah. They, but you're saying that basically you each of those phases, as opposed to it feeling at the time like a, a chapter, you were just responding to the circumstances as they flew into it your was, face. Yeah, I I, I think you I, I think I had learned how to write. Uh, John for the the people that I was working around, the people who were with me. I knew how to kind of take it in that direction. And, you know, I mean, there wasn't a, you know, a, a country rock lick that Kenny Hudson couldn't play. And he was a mandolin player. He was becoming right. more and more proficient on pedal steel. It's like, this guy is amazing. Jake, stunningly good oh guitar gosh. player now and a good bass player, Great just a really player. solid bass player. Uh, Kevin came out of the post-punk rock and roll thing, and so he understood it. Um, it was just, it was an unbeatable band. So this unbeatable band that makes a record with Buddy Miller and we have, you know, star power coming from Brady Blade, Emmylou Harris, Julie Miller, uh, Tammy Rogers, you know, on violin, uh, all of those folks. It's like, uh, Phil Madeira, I'm sorry, Phil, I didn't, didn't mean to leave you out there. Yeah, you're all over this thing. It's like, how can a label not take this record somewhere? And some will shake while others simply languish in their sleep Me, I just fight to stay awake Yeah, I've always had this black cloud Always had this black cloud Always had this black cloud label not only couldn't take it somewhere, they folded before it ever came out. Enter this gentleman, this golden heart named John Thompson, who decides to, did you press up a thousand copies of this thing? Is that I what it was? 2, at I gave you a thousand and I kept a thousand and I paid you for the thousand. And they were gone in three you days all, at Cornerstone. Yeah, yeah, right. You gave it at Sea Legs. It would have never, it would have never gotten off the launch pad. It would have never gotten off the launch pad had it not been for you guys doing it. But it was, yeah, it was that an giving, album that I happened to luck out because only a handful of those CD advances. Pioneer was the label at that point. And Pioneer, they yeah. sent it out, and I got one of the advance copies. And then when I called them about setting up the feature, the label was gone. And 
So I used Oops. that CD and called you with the pirate idea of, hey, if you get permission to release this, I have an idea of how we can help you put it out. At least a stopgap. You, like you could then, you, you still so you do whatever you're going to do later, but at least we could get you copies so that you could put some money in the bank and yeah. get, get something rolling, get a tour going. This is like a, a flawless album. It has everything on it. You know, and then everything falls apart again. And Americana was blowing up. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I I think I think Sunvolt and and I think Uncle Tupelo had split. You know, Jeff and Jay had had gone their separate ways. It's like, how is this not going to happen? Well, there are are gatekeepers out there. And and one of those gatekeepers was at a major journal. And and they just they told Buddy they they didn't think the band counted. That's what they said. Uh, and I, I know they are, they're in denial about it, but I heard it straight out of the lips of Buddy. He was on the phone with one of the editors. Do you only need one magazine to make it happen? Well, no, but this one was the was the country Bible of the time. It was no depression. And, uh, all, yeah, it, <laughs> we don't it, was. The mince words. it was. And, you know, I mean, there's and the thing is about it, niches and, and small things. If you were in the gospel world or if you were in the jazz world, like back then there wasn't a social media network where there was 50 ways or a hundred ways or 500 ways to get information. Out. There were gatekeepers that really held the fort down for each of those yeah, genres. Yeah. And they were the main one. And if they, if they just decided that this wasn't the thing, then you couldn't get through to the, to the tastemakers in that. Place. It was weird. It was really weird. And it was discouraging. And I, I remember walking around, I went out of buddy's house and just walked around the block. And I remember almost, I remember the lump in the throat. I'm not sure I shed tears about it, but I, I remember saying, I, I don't know how I'm going to tell these guys this. How much of this was meant to be? How much the work of the devil? How far can one man's eyes really see in these days of toil and trouble? plus side of the equation is about three minutes later we're being uh, asked to come to the UK and play some pretty big tours and there's this voice over there he comes to Nashville once in a while he's an old guard uh, radio announcer named Whispering Bob Harris Mm -hmm. and Bob Harris took that song because he was an Emmy Lou fan and he fell in love not just with the whole record not just with that song but with the whole record to the point where we're playing the mean fiddler in places like that in london and then going up to bob's radio station on bbc2 he has you know three million listeners across the land and we're talking with him about music and you know buddy and steve earl and all kinds of folks we're blowing up in the uk right after that record came out and it was because you gave it at sea legs we still could not find an american deal for it it was still being shopped to no avail which is why it came out in four Four separate, um, you know, configurations. I mean, what do you do? Right? We even went back in Buddy's studio and recorded. Um, and I think Kenny came back and just thought, I- I've had enough of it. I can't. I can't do this. That's why there are extra songs on the 21 song version. Because I thought, man, this record is guitar heavy. I've got to go back in and do something. So we we ended up recording three or four more songs. One of them was Solar System, mm-hmm. and uh, and that became yet another version of Audible Sigh. Um, but we just we just couldn't find a major label to take it. 
Um, right. So that's it. You know, finally ended up being you know released again on uh, Compass Records. Come in here and have a taste. Yeah, what's one more hopeless case? When your short wave dies and there's no one to listen. Stars going cold in your solar system. And so then you have the era after that with the sort of uh, more pop version, the power pop kind of thing yeah. with Summer Shines. Yeah. And then um, pretty much the band era of Vigilantes kind of winds down. And, and for the last right. 20 years, it's. It's Bill and all the voices in his head. <laughs> it's, it's you as, it the, is. as the solo uh, new version yeah. of uh, yeah, a troubadour. Um, I, I don't want to leave Paste Music for a, a moment. There started a label and they yeah. released uh, Locket Full of Moonlight, Fetal That's Position, right. and, the, and, uh, and, oh, and Perfume Letter. And I think that Summershine and Perfume Letter are the two most ambitious records I've done if you're just looking at the you know, indie rock, pop sort of thing. Very neo-psychedelic in a lot of ways. Those records are super ambitious. And we were really fortunate to have Tom Lewis, who's an Athens engineer, be part of that because he understood it. I mean, I, I think Tom breathes pet sounds. He, mm -hmm. he just, he's that kind of producer. Uh, but he, he actually helped us craft it. You know, all the Mellotron parts, the orchestrated string parts that make it sound very, you know, Strawberry Fields Forever-ish kind of thing. That's those are the sound like you pointed out earlier. Those are the sounds in my head. Philadelphia, and I'm a Patreon supporter of the True Tunes podcast. One thing I've done, and I know it makes a big difference for True Tunes, is to sign up for the email list at truetunes.com. It might not seem like a big deal, and it's really easy to do, but it's more important than ever for them to be able to communicate with us without having to pay middlemen like Facebook or Instagram. 
I know that John has some big ideas brewing, and having the ability to let us know is going to be pivotal to the success of those ideas. It's easy to do. Just find the link at the upper right corner of the homepage at truetunes.com and voila. Make sure to check for the confirmation message and respond. It can also help if you add JJT at truetunes.com to your contacts so that the messages from John don't get caught in your spam filter. Who knows? You might even win a free record, poster, or t-shirt just for being on the list. Thanks. Hey there. I'm Mark Feldbush, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast, and I follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. I get to hear classic artists that I really dig and discover new artists. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated with around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts and from across a wide range of genres including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and so much more. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true without all of the genre and market limitations and boxes I hear everywhere else. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically each week. And don't miss the massive archive list where all previous lists get saved. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, please support the artists you love once you hear and discover them there. Thanks. Welcome back to the True Tunes podcast. Well, earthly powers fail you, your body's strength is sap. That little break you were looking for never fell into your lap. Yeah, the voice is what you trusted, but the eyes had final say. Honey, you still got the devil left to pay. Still got the devil left to pay. Basically, the the solo troubadour era this last 20 years or so is the sound after the wheels have all fallen off and the wheels being all of the other people, the members, this whatever it is, 15, 20 people right. that have kind of come and gone through this institution, this, this school of hard knocks of vigilantes <laughs> of love. Um, they're all gone and it's, and you're the one that's left and, you know, and that's, that's why it's Bill Maloney and not called Vigilantes of Love. It's it's just you and yeah. and your guitar. Um, so well, but it's, they're not just folk records. I mean, because right. that I don't I don't want your your listeners who don't know me from Adam's House Cat. I don't want them to think that these records, even though that we don't have a big rock record production, they're they're two guitar, bass, and drum records with right. lots of overlay of you know pedal steel. Uh, Rags of Absence is a brilliant record, and I think this new one is that way. Um, but I, I, like I said, I, I'm writing 75 to 100 songs a year, sometimes more. And I've just got to, you know, only get one or two swings at it. So I'll put out those records. And I've been fortunate that all the years of, you know, driving the driving the concept of Vigilantes right. of Love and the van until the wheels right. fell off, right. of driving the concept until the wheels fell off, I was fortunate to find people out there that still 
stay in touch like the music right. matters. And I, I'm grateful for that. Again, I didn't engineer that. I didn't keep massive organized mailing lists or anything. I just put the word out and somehow, you know, the puppies show up at the door for a, you know, a snack. I'm, I'm grateful. I am grateful <laughs> beyond measure for it. And well, there are I'm, people who are astute. My fans yeah. are pretty musically astute, I think. Yeah. They, they don't just listen to a particular approach, but I, I'm proud of the records. I taught myself bass guitar. I learned how to play lap steel a couple of years ago. So I'm trying to throw those variables in the mix. And lo and behold, what I found is that, gosh, an electric guitar part, and I've gotten better at that too, they, it can actually converse with the lap steel. So there's going to be these places where they miss and harmonize. And I love it. To me, going over, I'm pointing over here, the studio is right behind me. Um, it, it, it still feels like the kid. I still feel like the kid who's skipping school to learn how to play black dog. You know, he's 18 years old, and, and that's, that's, that's what it still feels like. It right. still feels exciting and new. seemed kind of like the theme that I caught on this album. It opens with a prayer and closes with a song. What opens with a prayer and closes with a song? I mean, church services do, but in some ways lives do. You know, like I was thinking about how my grandfather passed away a few years ago and we were there at his bedside and he was long past the capacity to actually speak. Um, Mm -hmm. But when Michelle and I were singing for him, if we stopped singing at one point, his hand would start shaking. Like he was still telling, keep singing, keep singing. And our family just had a lot. And, and everybody gathered around his bed and sang songs. And um, and I just that thought, very like, sweet. it opens with a prayer and closes with a song, like a prayer, like a baptism, a, a dedication of a baby. And then you're singing at a funeral. And I'm thinking, so it is a life. One of the songs that jumped out, I, I wanted to uh, get your your take on and see if I'm right, but Faith Seeking Understanding. That seems a, like a song that could have gone on almost any Vigilantes or Bill Maloney project ever. Like, yeah. That seems to be almost like the bumper sticker you could have put on any one of your guitar cases you've ever owned. So tell me about, about that, how that fits into this theme and this concept yeah. of opening with a prayer and closing with a song. and. Yeah, the song is cave in, and then the parenthetical is faith seeking understanding, or the other yeah. way around. 
or understanding <laughs> seeking faith. And to me, the front end of that, is it Aquinas? Was it Thomas Aquinas that gave us that? Yeah. I may be out of my yeah. league here. But anyway, I think that I think it was Aquinas. It's faith, faith seeking, understanding. But the or other way around was my addition to it. And that was to take the the brutalities and atrocities of life, force you to find the faith to find God behind the veil. This is what Beekner was writing about, the absence of God. How do you find God in his supposed absence? That's a huge theme in my work. But mm-hmm. the song takes its specific uh, reference point and starting point, cave-in, in a, in a coal mining cave-in, which is an, another theme that I've written a lot about. And, you know, the, the loss of lives and, you know, does anybody you know recognize the deserted cities of the heart? This is the foreman who's actually singing the song who has to take, you know, the body count as he calls the role and the people that aren't coming up. It's a grim song in a lot of ways. I mean, it is, but it has more of a, it has more of a Tom Waitsy kind of bluesy thing to it that I never put in any of my songs. But that, that song is kind of a showcase piece. So after the acoustic opener, um, the, the, that's where it goes, it, it, which is a pretty heavy-handed song. I'd love to have a band that could play that. I, I, there's, it, it would just be great to be out on the road with a, a band that was replicating that entire record. Um, but that, that's, that's the answer to your question, faith-seeking understanding, which is kind of what we're always about um, mm-hmm. in many ways. You know, Lord, why this? And, you know, what about that? And uh, when are you going to act? And, you know, but the other way around is, the, is the, the harsh brutalities of life that we have to walk through and then wake up and still say, hey, you know what? I still believe. He is in control, you know. And we go right back to the start of this conversation. That was the transcendent moment. That There were transcendent moments that I heard in Beatles music and in and Roger McGuinn's 12-string guitar. That was my first religious experience. And those are the things I think that should motivate artists. Like, well, if you have a hunger for the transcendence, you should pick up a guitar or open a keyboard and start playing because you'll find it there. You will find it in some shape, form, or fashion of something coming out of here, and it will be a conduit for something transcendent. There's just something about that that is essentially spiritual and emotional, and it, and it that that faith-seeking understanding because God gave us brains as well. Like there, it's not like we're mindless in our faith. There's a lot of mirror looking and and conf, like you call it confessional uh, about your own failures, your own um, struggles. 
So, um, just on a functional level as a songwriter, is your craft evolving, changing? What are you doing to, um, as a craftsman, to kind of uh, make it exciting for you to keep doing this stuff? Well, I think I'm, I think I'm singing differently. That's a good question, and I, I wanted to get to this, but this, this question is perfect for it. I think I'm singing in a different way. I'm, I'm singing in a, uh, a more softer way rather than just blowing everything straight through, um, you know, a strong voice trying to get over monitors. I'm, I'm singing with, with far more, um, you know, a soulfulness in the voice that wasn't there before, and I'm singing my own harmonies now. Um, you know, which, and, you know, they'll come out, you know, sounding like, you know, Neil Young singing with himself or Keith Richards with Nick. There's a certain uh, calculated roughness to it. Uh, it's not that the notes are wrong, but they might, they're not going to be, they're not going to be uh, uh, pro-tooled into perfection. And I love that. I think that's what makes it sound like Brian Quincy Newcomb, who we all know and love, paid me a huge compliment when the uh, Lands and Peoples record came out. And then again on Rags of Absence, he said, Bill, I don't know what it is. He said, I know you're playing all the instruments on this, but it sounds like there's a band in the room. Look at all of the diamonds. Look at all of the rust. Look at all of the boom. And look at all of the Vistas Golden Eternities It's just pulling on boots Rolling up your sleeves Hide me in the darkness All that's lost and found Hide me in the darkness So I, I get excited about that when I do hear a more escalated demo that's more than just me a guitar and a voice you know when it starts to mature and take shape it's like i, I think I, I know where this is going you know so anyway and then sometimes it's, you're it's, sending it's, files like you're able to get chris bland to play on this and a vol bit. yep chris um, delivered great parts bill pratt bill pedal pratt who also played with the wayside i think before he played with you, oh good with us yeah and he played pedal steel oh he's cornerstone and played on some he is amazing so you send he a song a to him, he can play with it in New England and send it back to you. So that's something we couldn't do back in the day as easily. But That's um, true. Yeah, there's definitely some great takeaways there. Right. Uh, a friend of mine who I was in a band with in high school, a guy named Mark Consul, played guitar on uh, on Motherload and uh, right. on another song, actually on the Chris Plan song uh, that Chris plays bass on. And it's just perfect parts. Mark's a great guitar player. He's, you know, he's semi-professional, but he plays a lot in Atlanta. We were in a high school band together. And uh, I thought, well, Mark, are you still playing? He said, heck yeah, man, I'm still playing. You know, I, I've got a, I got an R&B review band with uh, three girl singers and, you know, um, I, I still play. So anyway, Mark contributed. So yeah, the, Sydney, the file sharing thing has definitely started to work. So. Is touring completely out of the question at this point or is it just on pause? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, Lord willing, and, and I mean that, Lord willing, we'll, we'll get back there in some shape, form or fashion. I, I don't know if anybody, you know, wants to listen, but uh, it'll, it'll be fun to, you know, take a swing at it. I think it'd be great in some shape, form, or fashion if uh, if uh, Jake and Kenny and Kevin and I could get back together and go out and do the Audible side record or something like that, and maybe with the idea of moving into another album. I'd love to play with those guys again. Mm -hmm. um, but I know everybody's busy, so right. see what happens. You must know they speak in murmurs Whenever you're around Grab your dry goods and steeples Get out of town Yeah.
want to kind of bring this in for a landing with some conceptual, a little bit more philosophical, overarching questions. Tug on that beard a little bit. After 30 plus years of this, how has your concept of the potential or even the utility, what music can accomplish in an individual's heart or mind evolved? What do you think music can actually do for us and in us? I think what a songwriter could do is give, and what music can do is it gives us a nomenclature to define and excavate the hu- our own human experience. And I don't think that's as hard as it sounds. I, I think it crosses all sorts of boundaries. It doesn't have to be the American experience. It could be just humanity's experience. If you're doing the job right, it, it could be a song about, you know, loving and losing. It could be a song about, you know, a political song. That's something, you know, Joe Strummer would be proud of. Uh, it could be a Leonard Cohen song that has a lot of, you know, poetic obfuscation in it, but he's, he's drawing from multiple images to pull out things. I think if you're doing your work right, then the thing that you're, you've put out there that, that came from the core of this thing, seeking, you know, seeking faith um, with understanding or seeking transcendence, some sort of, to me, transcendence and our experience of it, when it's, when it's spoken of, it's a way of verifying that this world around us, it's not just this. There's more to it than that. And that seems to me to be the, the biggest philosophic question. Is there, is there life beyond the grave? Um, you know, even a, a contingency of people uh, in, the, in the Corinthian church, you know, Paul had to spend a good bit of ink, a couple of letters trying to straighten them out on the fact, wait a minute, you know, there is a resurrection and that's the only reason I'm out here. It's always resurrection. And I can't tell you what it's like, but I can give you some examples. The seed that goes into the ground is not going to look like what went into the ground. It's going to come up something bigger than life. And that there are little nuances of that can come out in good written songs. And that's, mm. that's what I think the, uh, would be a, you know, a quick answer to your question. But I, I still believe in it. I think it's one of the reasons why, in more of a grandiose way, I think it's more one of the reasons why U2 does what they do. I think Bono just absolutely believes, if I say what I want to say in the right way, then it's going to affect change. And he's right. And people do listen and they do take their cues. And people who would never think about unpacking, you know, a, a pop song that's just as challenging as some of their material is, you know, all of a sudden they're thinking about things they've never thought before, you know. Um, you know, or maybe they had been told to think about it before, maybe in Sunday school class or from the pulpit. But music, because of its conduit and because of the venue, literally and figuratively, that it plays itself out in, you know, we all, you know, plug into something and we, we put it on our we put it on our head and we listen to it. And we listen to these messages and these yearnings and these strivings. And, and, and that's, that's, that's powerful. And when you've got somebody as eloquent and as astute and as cool, you know, as Bono, you know, then, I mean, how can, how can you go wrong? You know, is he a minister? Is he a pop musician? What is he? Well, he's all of the above. He's a human. He's a human that's tapped into the depths of what it means to be a human. And uh, that's that's kind of how I see, you know, my thing working out on a much, much smaller level. But that's what I try to do when I pick up the guitar. So. I heard Billie Holiday singing on radio. Find yourself down, down on your look. Baby, you can help yourself. Just like the first time 
I'm just not ready to give up on the idea that we might not be able to change someone's mind in a few minutes with a single song, but over the span of a conversation and a relationship, we can change the tenor, we can change the temperature, we can, overall, we can influence and and massage a situation so that somebody might have their heart reoriented. I've seen that happen for good and ill. And if it wasn't possible, I don't think we would have seen the the civil rights era and the way that music influenced people to start to think about oh. civil rights differently. And and the in the sixties, the way that it started yeah. to open up people to think about the Vietnam War and different things. We need the conversation um, to change. John, you've nailed it. This is so true. The only word that I want to introduce, and it's it's the concept that's gone on because of this very thing, you know, that we have in front of us, is sometimes the truth of what's under our skin has been reduced to agendas. And we are so polarized that my question in my darker moments is, are we even able to hear anyone anymore? Are we able to hear the other side of the aisle or, you know, and, and it's a concern of mine because I don't know that we've got, I don't know that we've got the vocabulary or the nomenclature to describe something that's in the middle or a an amalgamation of the two. I don't, and I think we're losing our ability in that to compromise, to make allowances, to appreciate. Do I th- think there's a message, you know, that, that needs to be heard? I do, but I don't think it needs to be an agenda to the point where all of a sudden we are l- lacking the compassion of Christ. How would Jesus do it is still a very valid to me, a very valid um, ideal to approach. You know, when we're relating to the world, or but the world isn't the world anymore. The world is, is it's as big as our backyard. It's our family, it's our kids, it's our colleagues. How do we register this stuff out there and then begin to see, you know, the Jesus that's inside of them? That's a huge thing. You know, even if it's a part of that, I'm a person I disagree with about things, how do we see it? I'm, I fail at it a lot, but the internet has become a... Um, a tool of polarization in so many ways. I don't know how we step around it and say, wait a minute, that's not what I said. Um, let, let me make sure I heard you right. These are the kind of time we need, the kind of time we need to take with people to listen and l- to really learn how to listen. And then hopefully they hear us in response. It, it all feels very, very liquid right now. I think we're in a different era. In some ways it's harder to identify where the problems are and where the evil is coming from and what is tripping us up. But music helps us learn how to listen better. If we use it right, it sure does. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's just you know. In, in fact, at the end of the day, it might get, it might be the last word, you know, that we that we that we live by, you know, that we yeah. use as as the thing that kind of moves us on.
We don't usually do this with a list this long, but I told you earlier I would let you know which songs we used on this episode, and uh, I want to take a minute here and sort of back-announce these, because it's amazing to me how rich Bill's VOL and solo catalog is, and Bruce poured over the entire catalog and chose over 40 clips this time. So I'm going to run down that list, and uh, again, you can find this whole list on the show notes page, but I just wanted to acknowledge the riches that we had to listen to on this. In our opening segment from Bill Maloney's solo work, we heard You Give It All Your Heart, Baby I Was Lucky to Get Out of There Alive, The World's Tip Jar, and then from VOL, we heard Real Downtown, It's Not Bothering Me, Resume, Runaway Train, Welcome to Struggleville, Could Be a Lot Worse, and a little tag of Real Downtown. And that was just the opening segment. In the first set, we heard, again from Bill, Shadow Canyon, and You Old Cow Puncher, and then from VOL, we heard Who Knows When the Sunrise Will Be, Double Cure, Losing It, It's Alright Doctor, Strike While the Iron's Hot, and Tracing It Back to Its Source, all again, just in the first set. On the second set, from Bill Maloney's solo work, we heard Face of the Clock, we heard from VOL, Making It Up As We Go Along, Tempest, Welcome to Struggleville, we got a special sneak peek listen to just a little bit of one of those rare rehearsal sessions that those who get the Struggleville vinyl reissue will hear of Last to Know. Then we also heard I Can Explain Everything, Glory in the Dream, Real Downtown, To the Roof of the Sky, Taking on Water, Black Cloud or Me, Resplendent, Solar System, and Galaxy, all on set too. On set three, it was mostly Bill Maloney's solo material with uh, You've Still Got the Devil Left to Pay, Nothing Here Was Ever Meant to Last, Till Your Heart Got in the Way, Cave In, Hide Me in the Darkness, Tumbleweed Dreams, If My Heart is Broken, and Trimmed and Burning. And then in the soapbox feature, we heard VOL's Skin, and from Bill's solo project, we heard the exclusive instrumental mix of Best Seat in the Room, which you have also heard on other episodes of the show. Thank you, Bill, for that. You can find most of this music at BillMaloneyMusic.com, where he has vinyl and CDs, and there's a link on that page to his Bandcamp page, where all of it, or at least most of it, is available digitally as well. You can find this whole list, including the names of which versions we used, some of them are quite rare, and which albums each song can be found on on the show notes page at truetunes.com slash VOL. Thanks for unlocking the vaults for us, Bill, and thanks, Bruce, for gathering all of these great clips. I'll be right back with some final thoughts right after this. True Tunes is on the road. I've been to Indiana, California, Tennessee, Iowa, and Illinois so far, and we are currently looking at opportunities around the country. These conversations have been a lot of fun, with me bringing a turntable and some records and a guitar, and often finding artists or other special guests to join me. I've also done songwriting workshops, music business clinics, and even some conversations about how we can slow ourselves down and listen to music more carefully, more thoughtfully, and yes, more spiritually. So, from auditoriums to small groups, there's kind of something for everyone. You can follow all of the action at truetunes.com slash events, and if you would be interested in having me come speak in your neck of the woods, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and let me know. I'm also excited to be aligning with the Porchlight Network for house shows. Porchlight is a growing network of house show venues around the country, and you can learn more at porchlight.art. So, for house shows, look me up at Porchlight. For schools, venues, churches, or other opportunities, just connect with me directly. And hopefully, I'll be seeing you out there in person. 
As I pull out my soapbox to wrap this up, I'm thinking about one of my favorite Vigilantes of Love lyrics. It comes from the song Skin from their 1995 album Blister Soul. Using Vincent van Gogh as a jumping off point, Melanie contemplates the solitary, frustrating path of the artist, especially an artist prone to self-destruction and introspection on the search for the deeper path. Sometimes you can't please everyone Sometimes you can't please anyone at all You sew your heart onto your sleeve And wait for the axe to fall Painters, writers, musicians, artists of all kinds can take up the call, can dig deep and offer up something beautiful or ugly but true to the world. But then it's usually about the marketplace and a different set of principles kick in. You as the artist wait for the chips to fall. And it seems like they rarely fall the right way for the lifers. But like Vincent, and maybe Bill, and certainly me, you probably have to be a little bit crazy to keep at it. We'd all probably be more successful if we simply let the market be our guide. Just make the kinds of paintings, books, and music that will sell, forgetting those hard stories, those deeper truths churning in our guts. Just paint a pretty picture or write a catchy hook and cash the checks. And sometimes the planets seem to align, the circumstances all seem to line up and we manage to craft art that is beautiful, meaningful, and somehow commercially viable. But someone at the label steals the money, or the label shuts down, or the band breaks up, and the axe falls. Remember, Starry Night, Van Gogh's famous painting, is based on the view he could see from his room at a mental asylum. He voluntarily checked himself in there shortly after the ear incident. And while that painting has provided art historians and professors countless opportunities to contemplate its possible deeper meanings about spirituality, depression, hope, even Christ himself, Van Gogh considered it a failure. There are a lot more of us, we, the wounded, the hurting, the afraid, the confused, the broke than there are successful rock star types. Don't let anyone or their social media account tell you any differently. We can whistle past these graveyards or we can stop, come inside, find our friends, sit down and have a meal together. Somewhere off in the distance, we're likely going to hear the aging, softer, gentler voice of a songwriter who has been sewing his heart onto his sleeve and dodging axes for a long, long time. He's one of many bards here in Struggleville, and something tells me he'll keep writing these songs as long as there's breath in those lungs of his. By all industry standards, Bill Maloney is a classic music industry failure. He had several bites at the apple, access to the system, contributions by major names, and endorsements by a who's who of the intelligentsia of rock. And here, nearly 30 years after its release, the special remastered vinyl reissue of Welcome to Struggleville will only have a manufacturing run of a few hundred copies. Not really moving the needle, is it? But I have had those songs stuck in my head for more than half of my life. 
When plans have fallen to pieces around me, the bank account is empty, no one shows up for the concert, another friend gets sick or dies, another marriage ends, or the bad guys seem to keep winning, I hear Bill's voice singing, welcome all you suckers to Struggleville. And I remember, I'm not alone in this lonely town. Sometimes, the answer love gives is the hardest one to take, but at least it's an answer. And here Bill is, still writing and singing these songs. That's what lifers do. And thank God he's not alone. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes podcast. Thanks to Bill Maloney for his time and for cracking open the massive vault of music and letting us use so much of it. It would be great if our listeners would be extra generous over at Bill's digital music store. And for you fans who already have the music, please share this episode. Sure, post it online. That's great. But what's even better is if you think of 10 friends who love great music and conversations and personally invite them to listen. Social media posts get missed by far more people than they are ever seen by. Personal calls, texts, and conversations go a long way. If you're new to this show, welcome. If you love Bill's music, I think you might be particularly interested in our previous episodes with Michael McDermott, Bruce Coburn, Blitz and Trapper, Buddy Miller, and Phil Madeira, but it has been wonderful hearing from people lately who are digging way back into the archives and enjoying episodes all the way back to the very beginning. Make sure to check out the show notes page for this episode at truetunes.com slash VOL for the full music list, some great video clips, and a lot more. As always, thanks to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for the podcast theme, their instrumental remix of Full Circle. Please join Phil's Patreon gang and visit his Bandcamp page where you will find tons of rare studio and live recordings by Phil and his various bands, as well as digital reissues of many classic Keggy albums. We've got great new True Tunes t-shirts, stickers, buttons, and pins available, so check those out too. And if you'd like to have me come speak in your neck of the woods, let me know. This podcast was written and produced by me, JJT, with co-production, editing, and sound design by Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions. The contents of the program are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. Thoughts and opinions of our guests do not represent the positions of the producers or our sponsors. Discernment is recommended. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding all ye suckers to stay tuned and stay true. Peace. Vigilantes of love, Athens, Georgia, blah, blah, blah. We're glad you're here. Take care of each other.